Our scripture reading this morning is taken, first of all, from Romans chapter 1, and then from Romans 11 and 12. Romans 11, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 1. Hear the word of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, had burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Then we turn to chapter 11, in between the Apostle has outlined at length the gospel of the grace of God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and in Romans 9 to 11, he's talking about the consequences this has, especially for the Jewish people, as well as for the Gentiles. And he says in Romans 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Brothers and sisters, according to my records in the last number of years when I've been here in this pulpit, I've often preached on Ephesians and Romans. Today we come to the Apostle Paul drawing out the conclusion of so much of his gospel message when he says in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This is the word of the Lord. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 48, stanzas 2, 3, and 4. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we have not read this morning from all of Romans 12, but even with those verses that we read, you may have noticed a very stark difference between those two chapters, between the behavior of those two groups of people. In the first one, chapter 1, Paul is, people are clearly, Paul's talking about people who are clearly living only for themselves only for their own passions, alienated from God, out of control, using each other, filled with every manner of sin, envy, murder, and everything else under the sun, much of which we see in our day today. In the second chapter, chapter 12, people are living in harmony, in tune with God, in harmony with each other, under the control of the Spirit, and living sacrificially for God and His people rather than for self. What is it that brings that stark difference? That stark difference we see in these two chapters, that stark difference that we see actually in the world around us today. Clearly, it is the gospel more specifically, it is the grace of God. In the ten chapters between these two, Paul has made his point. The grace of God, rather than encouraging or condoning sin, is the spring, the foundation, the origin of righteous conduct. Paul's opponents have wanted him to emphasize more and more law. But Paul is quite adamant in Romans that the big stick of the law can never do what the gospel of grace can do. Truly, for Paul and the New Testament, religion is grace, ethics is gratitude. We are not under law, but under grace, says Paul in Romans 6.14. 
Law doesn't have much of an eye for grace, but grace cultivates and encourages lawful and Christian behavior. <coughs> really, these words of Romans 12, 1 and 2, are a summary of the Christian life. What is the Christian life all about? Paul describes it for us here. God's word comes to end of this theme. The Apostle Paul urges God's children to be totally committed to God's service. Presenting our bodies, first of all, <coughs> changing our minds and discerning God's will. So the Apostle Paul urges God's children to be totally committed to God's service. He talks about presenting our bodies, about changing our minds, and about discerning God's will. Brothers and sisters, in these two brief verses, every single word is actually very important. Paul is a master letter writer. <coughs> I won't analyze every word, but let's pick a few. Notice, first of all, the word therefore. I beseech you, therefore. Whenever he uses the word therefore, you have to ask what it's there for. And it's always there for the purpose of drawing a conclusion. He spent three chapters talking about Jews and Gentiles, and now he's drawing the conclusion, the consequence. He spent ten chapters talking about the gospel, and now he's drawing the conclusion. There's another word, the word brothers. We realize it's a deliberate choice of word as well. He spent the early chapters talking about tensions between Jews and Gentiles in the Roman church. And in chapters 9 to 11, he expanded on that as he wept about his kinsmen and talked about the, the olive trees, natural Jewish branches, and the way in which we Gentiles have been grafted into that olive tree. But now all of that just fades into the background as he beholds Christ and he beholds the people of God in Christ and he just calls them brothers. Actually, he says, brothers and sisters, because the Greek word really means siblings. Siblings of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters. Siblings of Jesus Christ are now siblings of each other. Now all believers, irrespective of their ethnic origin, are brothers and sisters in the one international family of God, and so all have precisely the same vocation to be the holy, committed, humble, loving, and conscientious people of God. Here's the third word. By the mercies of God. Mercies. For 11 chapters, what has he been talking about but the mercies of God? What is the gospel but this? It is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners in giving his son to die for them, <coughs> in justifying them freely by faith, in sending them his life-giving spirit, and in making us his children. As a matter of fact, mercy is a key word in Romans 9 to 11. 9 verse 15, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. 9 verse 16, so it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God's mercy. 9.23, his purpose is to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Put those words together and you see what Paul is saying. 
I appeal to you. I appeal. I beseech you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. To what? To do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Again, read it carefully. It's a climax, not just in Romans, but a climax in redemptive history. For centuries they have gone to the tabernacle and to the temple and to the priest and to, the, to sacrifice. What did they sacrifice? Not just any animal. They sacrificed animals, obviously, but not just any animal, but a holy, <coughs> acceptable, unblemished animal to God. They did it again and again. But now Paul says... I urge you by the mercies of God to present not an animal, but to present yourselves to God in a once-for-all kind of fashion. Make the sacrifice that beats all sacrifices. Make the sacrifice that makes the sacrifices of the old covenant look like nothing in the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I beseech you, to make this sacrifice. And did you notice he says, a living sacrifice. Think about it. For centuries, whenever they went to the priest, what did they present? They presented a dead sacrifice. If they had not already killed the animal, the priest would kill it. It was dead on the altar. It didn't move. The problem with offering a living sacrifice, however, is that as someone said, it tends to slip off the altar when you put it there, and it wants to wiggle its way free. It's why Abraham in Genesis 22, when he has, was going up to offer up his, his, his son Isaac, of all things, can you imagine? He had to bind him, he had to tie him up somehow before he put him on the altar. Otherwise, Isaac would never have stayed there. It's the problem of a living sacrifice. It gives you a new appreciation for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ because that was not a dead sacrifice either. It was a living one. With firm resolve, he sets himself toward Jerusalem. He offers himself to the soldiers. No one can take my life unless I lay it down myself. What obedience. Full of life, he subjected himself to death. He could have slipped off that altar, that cross. He could have called for a legion of angels. He could have walked away from Gethsemane. All those things. It's the difficulty of offering a, a living sacrifice to God. He didn't do any of those things. That was your brother. That was your Savior. Old sacrifices were no problem. You killed it. That was it. You put it on the altar. You burned it. It was done. But to offer yourself as a living sacrifice, it really means to offer the rest of your life to God as a, in a living fashion. It really does mean to do what Jesus did. He offered not just the last few hours to God, he offered it all to God, and God was the one who determined its end and its new beginning in the resurrection. For Jesus, that wasn't three hours, that was 33 years. For you and me, that might be 70 years, it might be 90 years, it might only be 20 years. Too bad. God will determine its end and its new beginning in the life and death of your brother. 
And you offer the sacrifice, you've got to understand, not for a moment in order that you might be accepted by God somehow by way of your own merit. But you offer this sacrifice because this is the message of Paul. This is the message of Scripture. You have been loved. You have been accepted. You have been blessed. And you have been made right with God by the living sacrifice of your great sibling. It's like his sacrifice, but yet it's unlike his sacrifice. Because Jesus' sacrifice is a sacrifice that ends all guilt offerings and sin offerings. Your sacrifice does not atone for sin. Only Jesus' sacrifice did this. You offer this sacrifice not for a moment in order that you may, might be accepted, but because you have been blessed and accepted and made right with God. Never, ever let anyone take that away from you. What does it mean then to present yourselves as a living sacrifice? A living sacrifice means every day, every hour, every moment, right now, you have to deliberately, consciously, continually, and perpetually offer yourself to Him. It's constant. It's never over. It's intense. You need to work at it. You need to, be, you need to pray about it. You need to put effort into this as a result of the effort of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean? It means that you put to death the right to live life as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know best as to what should happen in your life. You put that to death and you give your life to God. It feels like a death to really say, you know best, oh God, and I, don't, I, I trust you Here's what you say in your word. I don't like it, but I'm going to do it. I don't choose anymore. It feels like death, but really it is life. The one word in Psalm 92 jumped out at me this morning, the word flourish. This is what God wants. He wants his people to flourish. He wants you and me to flourish in our lives and our congregations to flourish. How will we do it? Only by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It really has a comprehensive character about it. Nowadays, it's very popular to say, present your heart to God. And people too often conclude that they can do that in worship on a Sunday morning. You just present your heart to God, and then you go live your life the way you want to live your life. Really? Notice what Paul says. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Your bodies. It speaks about your physical presence. It speaks about you, wherever you are. This happens more often in Romans 6 and Romans 12. Paul talks about your bodies. Why does he talk about bodies all the time? Well, I think he talks about bodies because in, in Romans 1, he has talked about what people do with their bodies. And they don't present their bodies to God. As a sacrifice, they present their bodies in all kinds of ridiculous ways to each other in all things that he doesn't even want to, to do things he doesn't even want to talk about. 
But the people of God, what are we to do? We are to present our bodies. It means the gospel comes through our minds and through our hearts. And the result of that is that even our bodies change and what we do with our bodies. In order to keep the sacrificial nature evident for us, Paul uses all kinds of similar imagery. The sacrifices are described as holy and pleasing to God. Just as no imperfect, blemished sacrifice could be given to the temple in the temple, so we too need to give our best. Just as the aroma of the offerings needed to be pleasing to God, so the aroma of our lives, what does it attest to? This kind of sacrifice, Paul says, is your spiritual worship. The New King James says your, your reasonable service. The word Paul uses actually is the, is the word from which you get our word logical. This is your logical worship. I doubt it has quite the same meaning as the word logical today. But our best dictionaries today suggest that it means something like this. This is your thoughtful worship. This is the worship that makes sense in light of everything that I've said to you. Worship that is appropriate. Maybe the NLT covers it best when it says, this is truly the way to worship Him. Maybe contrasts help us. You can contrast Romans 12 with Romans 1. Or you can contrast it, Romans 12 with Romans 3. There, when he talks about human depravity, he says that also happens through our bodies, in tongues which practice deceit, and lips which spread poison, in mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness, in feet which are swift to shed blood, in eyes which look away from God. But Paul has talked back in Romans 6 that this is what happens when you know and reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, then you offer the parts of your body, even the private parts, to God as instruments of righteousness and not as instruments of wickedness anymore. Truly, when God transforms people, brings them from darkness to light, he doesn't just change a heart or a soul and leave all the rest. No, then our feet will walk in his paths. Our lips will speak of the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing. Our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many mundane tasks. Our arms will embrace the lonely and the unloved. Our ears will listen to the cries of the distressed and our eyes will look humbly and patiently towards God. The transformation is a total transformation. It's a reformation that is underway throughout your whole, whole life. It's why worship doesn't just happen in the temple or here in the church building. It happens at home. It happens at work, in the marketplace, everywhere comprehensively. The reference to bodies is actually always quite shocking in Greek ears because Greeks said, well, the, the, the body's nothing, you know. When Paul comes in the book of Acts and wants to talk about the resurrection, they say, well, what, resurrection? You really want the body to come back again? No way. And so too here. Bodies? We don't want to talk about bodies. But Paul is saying here in a very profound fashion that there is no worship to God which is purely inward, purely abstract, purely mystical, purely introspective. It has its consequences, and its consequences are lived out in our lives. 
It must be expressed in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. What does your body say about you and your worship of God? Authentic Christian discipleship will include both the mortification of our members, of our limbs, and the presentation of our limbs to God. And even then, it's more comprehensive than that because Paul speaks also about our minds. He urges the people of God, after he said everything that he said, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, the way some people think about the work of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God, it's as if God has to arrange things in such a way that you are really spared the bother of having to think. People always want visions and voices and nudges and revelation to tell us exactly what we have to do in all kinds of situations. God said to me, they'll say to you, and you've got to say, well, really, 66 books of the Bible are not enough. God now is giving private revelation to you. Similarly, Reformed people sometimes seem to think that there comes a point in their lives when everything is just right in their service of God, and maybe even in your private life. Everything is just right, just the way you want. We had things right in the year 1995 or 2015, so just leave it there and don't mess with it. But Paul talks about being transformed, being reformed if you want. By the renewal of your minds. Doesn't that mean thinking? The reason your body does things differently and does actions differently is because you're transformed by the renewal of your mind. Doesn't that mean thinking? Doesn't that mean changing your mind? Reevaluating things? Didn't God give you a mind precisely so that you could change it now and then? Otherwise, he could have just installed a bunch of computer chips and we would all... Do as well as we're programmed to do. You see, the mind has tremendous impact. You can see that in Romans 1. It's very striking in the life of those who put themselves so hardly against God. Their mind is also involved. Paul says there in verse 18, they suppress the truth. 1 verse 18. They know the truth, but they suppress it. They squish it down. He says in verse 19 that God's invisible attributes have been clearly deceived. Even God's eternal power and His divine nature has been seen in the things of creation. When you are off on your vacation and you see a glorious landscape and you see glorious seas and whatever else and hills and mountains, don't you say, this is God? Well, these people, they suppress their thinking. This just happened. How did it happen? That takes more faith than to believe in God. He says there that they have been clearly perceived. It has to do with their minds. He says in verse 21 of chapter 1, they became futile in their thinking. That's what happens. Behavior doesn't change by itself. Evil behavior starts with evil thinking. And our culture, all our media today, is busy preying upon you and upon your children to change your thinking. So what do you do? You steep yourself in the Word of God and make yourself, make sure that you are being changed, not by the world, but by the Word. 
And Paul says in Romans 12, what you have to do is stop (coughs) being conformed to this world. It's another theme through Scripture. God says to his people when they're about to go into Canaan, you must not do as they do. Jesus says about the leaders of the church, the scribes and the Pharisees, do not be like them. We must not be conformed to the prevailing culture, but rather be transformed. But the only way to do that is by using your brains, the renewal of your mind. The Holy Spirit changes your mind by releasing power from within. By having you think through the norms and the values and the gains and the losses and the perspectives that are driving people around you, if the world controls your thinking, you're a conformer. If you don't think, you will be a conformer. You go along with the multitudes. Just do like everyone else. But if God controls your thinking, you will be a transformer. It's why we come to church. It's why we study the Bible. It's not just we want more information. You won't be saved by information. You're saved by transformation. You want to steep yourself in the Word of God because you want to be transformed by that world Word. And if you're not transformed by that Word in your thinking, you'll be transformed and conformed to the world. Paul is really saying, at every point, how do you offer sacrifice to God at every point in your life? By at every point in your life, you have to say, since I am God's child, since my great privilege is to be bought with the blood of Christ, should I have this attitude? Should I really hold to this position? Should I really bear this grudge? Should I have these values, these priorities? Should I hold to this view of the world? Young men who need to think about whether they should become ministers of the word, and I do believe that all young men should think about that. Maybe some only need to think about that for half an hour. Some will grapple with it for days and months and years. But why do they find the answers? They don't have to look for a voice today which says, go to seminary. But they have to use their minds to think about whether they have the gifts, the personalities, the abilities to do that. In fact, so it goes with every calling in life. You have to think. What are your gifts? What gifts has God given to you? If you don't have the gifts to be a mechanic, please don't try to be one. It's dangerous for a lot of people. You use your mind to think through the issues that are facing you at home and at church and at work. You don't resist change. You resist the devil. Maybe the devil isn't the one who doesn't want you to change. The Spirit of God He wants you to change on many, many points, I'm sure. And so there's Paul's third point. leads to a wonderful way to also discern God's will. Apostle Paul is really suggesting here there are two value systems that are incompatible. 
that are in collision with one another, this world and the will of God. Whether we are thinking about the purpose or the meaning of life, about how to measure greatness or how to respond to evil, about ambition, sex, honesty, money, community, religion, or anything else, the two sets of standards diverge so completely there is no possibility of compromise. If you're going to live apart from God, you're going to live this way. If you're going to live with God, you're going to live this way. It's two sets of standards. They are incompatible with each other. It's why Karl Barth called Christian ethics the great disturbance. So violently does it challenge, interrupt, and upset the tranquil status quo. But the point is, when we are presenting our lives to God, surrendering entirely to Him as, as so many living sacrifices then renewed minds shaped by the Word and the Spirit of God are able to discern and desire the will of God. The the problem that I think Reformed people often have is that we imagine that everything is predestined, everything is determined, everything is in God's plan, and that therefore we don't have to use our minds And we don't have to use our wills. If you think that way, then really you should go home today and read chapter 3 and 4 of the Canons of Dort. Because they talk about the will and they talk about the power of the Spirit. If you're not converted, then it's true you don't have a free will. But you you should not confuse free will with will. Because the Canons of Dort talk again and again, and Paul's talking again and again, about the fact that you still have a will... You can will all kinds of things. You have to decide all kinds of things. You have to decide whether you're going to listen to me or not. You have to decide whether you're going to go north, south, east, or west when you get out of here. You have to decide how you're going to observe the rest of this day. You have to decide. Everything is not predetermined. You have God, in His electing grace and His electing love, even factors in the fact that you will use your mind. You will use your will. That's how mysterious. But the canons very specifically say the Holy Spirit changes us so that our minds think differently and our wills think differently. Not in disobedience to God, not in obstruction to God, but in submission to God. And that's why the biggest problem with the will of God It's not knowing what it is. Everybody wants a a vision or a revelation or whatever else. In most cases, you know what you have to do. You know what you have to change in your personal life. You know what you have to change in your relationship with people. You know where you have to repent. But the problem is having the will to do that which you know you ought to do. We know what He wants us to do with our time, with our money, with our gifts, with our sexuality. If you are steeped in the Scriptures, you know what the values of our Lord Jesus are. On all these points, we do know what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God, don't we? The bigger problem is doing it daily. Doing it intentionally. Saying No to self and yes to God. The biggest problem is our stubbornness, our resistance, 
Those old patterns are comfortable. What would people think of us now if we change our view on this? Well, maybe you should just stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ and change your view and admit you were wrong. That's why God gave you a mind. You see, even in our lives of gratitude, the truth is we are totally dependent on God. Even for this, people sometimes think you need the Spirit of God to get into the Christian life and, and then you can go on your own juices and your own batteries. Well, no, you need the Spirit of God to live the whole Christian life. Romans 8, Paul talks about the Spirit. He says the Spirit of adoption. Why the Spirit of adoption? Because the Spirit of adoption, His mission is to make us better adopted sons and daughters of God. You need His Spirit to do that day after day. To live a life which is a total sacrifice to God, you need the Spirit of our elder brother, the same Spirit that worked in him. It's not really surprising when you take the Gospels and when you observe the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you read? What do you see? Do you see somebody who's just a computer chip that's acting out? No. You see him praying. You see him submitting. You see him struggling and beseeching and weeping and trembling and rejoicing, always dependent on the Holy Spirit. Well, then don't be surprised that in your life you need to do the same. You need to beseech God. You need to suffer. You need to be called to repentance. You need to pray. You need to submit. You need to do all kinds of things as you live out <coughs> the Christian life. Because it's not easy to be a living sacrifice. It wasn't easy for God's Son. Why should it be easy for you and for me? But we'll do it. Not in order that God might love us somehow, but because in Christ He has loved us so, so very wonderfully. Won't you love him back with everything?